there's certain questions that are asked in the early church. There's certain questions that are asked in the medieval church. And there are certain questions that are asked in the Reformation church. Doesn't mean mm. that we have different doctrinal understandings. It means we're responding to different questions. But then in order for us to respond to those questions, the undergirding structure of covenant still has to be there for us to ask or answer those questions as we would in the early church, as we would in the medieval church, and as we would in the, in the Reformation church too. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same signup link or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we are on our promises and fulfillments season. We are on episode 15. It's on covenant and medieval theology. And this chapter in the Covenant Theology book by Crossway and Reformed Theological Seminary is written by Douglas F. Kelly. Again, this is in the Covenant Theology book by Crossway and RTS. It's published by Crossway. And in our show notes, you can find a link to Crossway to get this book for yourself. You can find a link to the Society of Reformed Podcasters to find other like-minded Reformed podcasts out there. And you can find a couple links to find a Reformed church near you, near you in, your, in the church finder to call home. So again, with this chapter, it's just Peter and myself, and it is within part two of this book, which is under historical theology. So if you didn't hear last week, please pause and go back because it was a phenomenal episode with Dr. Ligon Duncan, and he started off this new section in the book with Covenant in the Early Church. So if you did listen to that episode, we're going to fast forward about, oh, about 400 years or so where he left off. Theology. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And in case, and we're going to, we'll record something pretty soon for this, but um, before we get to this, in case you guys haven't heard or saw on social media that we're officially planting a church under the oversights of Oceanside URC with Danny Hyde. And so if you're in Orange County or if you're thinking about moving to Orange County, or if you have friends or family in Orange County, please hit us up. Email us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com if you want a church that will consistently preach the gospel to you. And we start our meetings in downtown Santa Ana uh, in October, right around Reformation Day. So we're going to have some, some pretty cool posts coming up 
Um, so yeah, wanted to shout that out and we'll, we'll create some stuff for that as it comes on, but I'm, I'm stoked to talk about the medieval church, medieval theology. Cause it's, I think it's a, it's an area of history that a lot of Christians like don't know what to do with. Yeah. That's cool that you're talking about your church and, and it's gonna, it's, it's neat. You, you, did you do that on purpose? Reformation day right around there, we October did. 31st. Yep. Oh, very cool. And just so you guys, in case you guys aren't good at geography or know what he's even talking about with these locations, we are in Southern California and we have the, we have the, probably the best weather out of anywhere in the country. So it's That's a little true. county That's called true. Orange County. It's in between, it's South of LA and it's North of San Diego. It's right <laughs> on the ocean where there's all good surfing. That's right. And uh, the county seat the kind of where the main airport of John Wayne is in Santa Ana. It's kind of the main city. So if you ever heard of Anaheim, we, you know, Disneyland, the Anaheim angels and Anaheim ducks. And so a lot of you heard of the city of Anaheim, that's just North of Santa Ana and Santa Ana is just North of, you know, San Diego County pretty much. So it's <laughs> yeah. right in the middle of Orange County. Yeah. Yep. That's true. So we'll jump right in um, to this episode. So like I said, where we left off with Dr. Duncan, I think he kind of left off around second century, very early church fathers. Now we're jumping ahead to medieval times. So maybe help take us back in time. What's going on? Where are we? Why is it medieval times? Yeah, well, first off, everything's in black and white. Just, <laughs> just, just kidding. Everything's dirty. Yeah, everything's dirty. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody brushes their teeth. Nobody showers. That's um, what I think of medieval times. It's like everyone's living in dark castles. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, which is probably not too far off the truth to be right, to be super honest. But yeah, it's so and a lot of scholars like they try to figure out because there's no like nobody like has a newspaper at the time and says like today's the start of the medieval uh, medieval times. Um, so that it doesn't like shout out and say, this is the exact date, but it's somewhere in the sixth century. So it's a couple, a couple centuries after the, uh, the Roman empire falls. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will put it right around the birth or kind of the, the ministry of Gregory the great. So like in the sixth mm -hmm. century ish, um, so 500 ish AD 520 to like 560 is mm -hmm. about the time people think that the uh, medieval time started. And it's also, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's not a, it's kind of like a bad name. So people put medieval as a bad name on this time. Like literally like it was dark. That's, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the time was dark. It's just, people don't know what to do with this times. So they call it dark um, mm -hmm. medieval times. And so, yeah, it's a couple hundred years after the early church which doesn't mean that nothing happened between the second century and the sixth century. Um, there's actually some great theologians, namely Augustine was right smack in the middle of the fifth century. Um, mm -hmm. He died in 430 AD. Um, and there was a, there's a bunch of other theologians that are in this time, Ambrose. Um, so yeah, there's, it's not like there's nothing that's happening between this time and the med medieval church. Um, but it's a time where um yeah, there's there's a little bit less known. A lot of the texts get lost, and people don't have access to the Bible. A lot of like no lay person has access to the Bible basically from the sixth century AD until about the seventeenth century AD. So there's mm -hmm. eleven hundred years 
where people were still reading the Bible, as one of my professors, Dr. Clark, will still say, people still read the Bible, but in general, lay people did not have access to it. Um, so yeah. that's, that's about the time that this starts, is the sixth century. Well, if, if you're kind of a history buff or interested in learning more about that, um, that's kind of a, more of an extra conversation. And Dr. R. Scott Clark is phenomenal with explaining just historical things or what's going on. So always feel free to reach out to him. But this is pretty much post-Roman Empire fall, like you yep. said, and it created kind of, I guess, a sort of a vacuum impact of what's going on in the rest of civilization across Europe. So I guess when they're talking about dark times, medieval times, you know, it's kind of a people were all in their different colonies across Europe trying to figure out, you know, what to do from here now that the great empire has fallen. And and so um, there was, uh, you know, probably sanitation issues, um, trying people trying to relearn how to live in society uh, without the rule of a great Rome. Um, there were certain things that were going on. I mean, you talked about physically dark time, like it could have actually been, there was actually a mini ice age during Mm -hmm. this time frame. Yeah. Later on. Yep. Yeah. There was the black plague was going on or the black death. Yep. Yeah. The great Western, Western schism, um, 1378 to 1417. Yeah. That's a fun story. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know know much about, you know, you know, the Western schism is a fun story, but that's for another time. Yeah. And then um, the rise of nominalism, which is skeptical about reality and realism of the Christian morality in the church. So um, I think there's nominalism and it's opposite voluntarism. Uh, And so there are two Mm -hmm. kind of understandings of how we understand how God works in this world. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's a broad brush, but generally speaking, those are the two two categories using this time yeah and and, and it, so it's post roman empire fall but it's pre-roman catholic official church because yep. just a reminder based on historical facts the roman catholic church wasn't until the council of trent about 1542 to 1562s so that this that takes place after what we're talking about in this chapter so the roman catholic church wasn't really a thing yet no yeah there was like and that's the thing i think a lot of people don't know what to do with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says we go all the way back to to Saint Peter, um, obviously contemporary of Jesus. But Roman Catholics look, will tell you that. Yeah, Roman Catholics <laughs> will tell you that. But then you ask them, show me the documentation, and they're like, well, "Our canon law." And it's like canon law is not documentation because that changes all the time. Right. Um, and so if you actually look, there's like Catholic ideas from maybe the ninth century until the fifteenth century. But nothing's codified to say we are the Roman Catholic Church until the Council of Trent. Yep. And um, just moving on a little bit, uh, that help me pronounce this: the Aristotelian popular Aristotelian, yeah, Aristotelian metaphysics, which is kind of big. So Aristotle is a Greek philosopher pre-Christ, um, okay. something around third century BC, if not a little bit before that. Um, a, a little bit after Plato. So if you guys know Plato, the philosopher, then Aristotle. So Aristotle wrote a couple philosoph- uh, philosophical books, physics, metaphysics, politics. Uh, and a lot of the language that he uses in these are used by a, a lot of the medieval theologians 
which isn't bad. He's not an anti-Christian because he, he like he just he doesn't know the tradition, so he he can't be anti something you don't know. Um, generally speaking, and then so even our reformers, John Calvin uses a lot of Aristotelian metaphysics. So if you guys yeah. are like, oh, that's a bad word, Aristotle. If you have been listening to our covenant theology series, when we say one substance, so one covenant of grace, multiple administrations, welcome to Aristotle's logic. That is that is precisely the same um, categories that he uses. We just we we think they're good categories, so we take them and say, okay, that that makes sense for what we see in the Bible. Hmm. That's that's that Aristotle. Aristotle guy. That Aristotle guy had so much potential. He was really onto something. And, he was uh, <laughs> he was close. If you read if you read his works, he he has some vague notion of an ultimate being. He doesn't quite get there, but he has some vague notion. But yeah, that's that's where a lot of um medieval church theologians get their category. They don't get their theology from Aristotle. That, that's a wrong idea. They get their categories from Aristotle. Hmm. And the reason why we even bring up Aristotle in this episode, which is way after Aristotle's uh, life, um, there are some, <clears throat> like you said, like that viewpoint still sticks on centuries later into this medieval area, time yeah. period. And these, these theologians and, and individuals that we're talking about in this chapter really get a lot of their views, whether they agree or not, with Aristotle. And yeah, so and Aristotle we, has The thing is, impact. we do, like, we still today get that. Like when we call the sacraments, so people call sign things signified, that's also from Aristotle. When you talk about substance and accidents, which just doesn't mean like accidents, like whoops, I like I did something dumb. Accidents just means things that can change. Substance is like the very thing that it is. So all all of those things that we use are still Aristotle's logic. Okay. So as we're talking about this chapter, we're talking about around AD 540, because that marks the birth time of Gregory the Great, who kind of kicked off just, I guess, unattachedly, like that was the beginning of the medieval period. And it wraps up the end of the 1400s. So yep. the, to the you know 15th century is. Yep. And um, so that's the time frame we're in Europe. Things are kind of uh, chaotic. And, and so the people that we're talking about in this Heinrich Bollinger, he is post medieval, more the contemporary with, with Calvin, but he's mentioned in this chapter, he wasn't born until 1504. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter Lombard has talked a lot about in this chapter. He was born in 1100 and he died in 1160. Yep. He's actually um, the predecessor to Thomas Aquinas who is born in 1225 to died in 1274. He's the successor to Peter Lombard. He's probably the most mentioned in this chapter. Yeah. And then of course we got the pretty pre-medieval people in this chapter, which are Augustine and Aristotle. And then we have uh, a couple other people. Um, Averos, he's a, a Muslim. Avero, yep. Avero, he's a Muslim. He's uh, from 1126 to 1198. Florent, Gabrorian, a Roman Catholic is mentioned in here. And then Leo the Great. No, not my son, Leo, even <laughs> though he is Leo the Great. Uh, this Leo the Great was born AD 390 to 400, which is pre-medieval. And he has some significance um, with um, the church going forward into the medieval period. So now that I did that, what do you have to say more about this, about this uh, chapter? Yeah, so I think I think generally speaking, most most Christians and, and certainly a lot of 
a lot of reformed Christians don't generally know what to do with the medieval church. Cause like, um, like Dr. Kelly talks about the very beginning of this, of this, uh, of this chapter, we're not, we're not really sure what to do with this because there's not much talk explicitly of a covenantal understanding of scripture. And so it kind of, it kind of looks like a first brush that like what Dr. Duncan talked about last week, yeah. all this talk in the early church about the covenant, about the two different administrations and them being of the same people of the ethne of the nations and uh, Abraham. And there's being, there being a pretty general consensus that we are, we are of Abraham in the early church. Uh, and then following along the line with all these apostles, there's this, like, there's this confusion when you get to medieval church of what happens, like where, where does this explicit covenantal talk go? Are, like, do they still have an understanding of the covenantal structure of scripture? Because they don't say it outright. Uh, and I think Dr. Kelly does a good job kind of weaving through a lot of this stuff um, and saying, you know, they, they may not talk about it explicitly, but like looking at a tall like skyscraper, um, you see the outside, you see the edifice, you see the, the concrete on the outside, but you don't see, because it's not visible on the outside, you don't see the structure, um, you don't see the beams that support everything. And he says, in order for us to better understand the medieval church, we have to understand where they came from and what they led to, um, especially so when you think of Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, even John Calvin, they were schooled so john Calvin was more in a humanist school which is kind of more renaissance which is post medieval times or medieval church or medieval theology but luther was very much schooled in a medieval uh, medieval school setting so he was an augustinian monk which is still kind of medieval church kind of stuff and so a lot of our reformers learned from a lot of these theologians so they got a lot of their structure of the bible from these theologians um, I'm sure they said that some of the stuff wasn't good, but a lot of the stuff that they kept. And so you can, you can, you can, you can't say outright the medieval church lost the Bible because they got it from somewhere and they still kind of helped the, the, the springboard for a lot of reformers to take the good from this stuff and say, Hey, let's, let's run with it. So I think, I think Dr. Kelly did a really good job of, of describing this stuff where we didn't lose it. Um, and the reformers took a lot of the good from the medieval church and brought it into kind of our contemporary times today. So that's, that was kind of my like initial observations from the chapter. Okay. So talking about the two, probably the two most main names in this chapter, Thomas Aquinas and Peter Lombard. Yeah. Um, how could you, to somebody that's brand new to this stuff, kind of just briefly introduce them to those two people and what kind of significances and backgrounds they have to the Christian church? Yeah, so like super short. So Peter Lombard was a theologian in the 12th century, which is 1100s. And so he wrote a long treatise, The Sentences. Um, and so these sentences were used really like up until and through kind of the Reformation. Um, and so if you wanted to be a theologian back in this day, back from, we'll say, 12th to 15th century, basically your entrance exam was memorize the sentences and you wrote a dissertation on the sentences. Um, and you wrote a commentary on the sentences. And so you had to know his theology backwards and forwards. Um, and so Dr. Kelly has a couple quotes from Lombard. And even though Peter Lombard doesn't use, quote unquote, covenant language in this, 
Um, I, I, so there's, there's a, uh, there's some stuff on page 313 and 314 that he talks about um, towards the bottom of 313 says, for instance, in Peter Lombard's The Sentences, there's no separate distinction on the covenants. Um, and so what he's, what he's talking about here is he doesn't see a distinction between the Old and the New Testaments. He sees them as one flowing story of a single God. Uh, and this is especially true when you go to his doctrine of God. So his doctrine of God doesn't distinguish between Old and New Testaments. You're like, well, obviously it doesn't. Well, it's, it's, it's an entirely different theological landscape at this point where there was talk of a different God in the Old Testament, New Testament. So when you put those two together, it's okay, this, this is kind of a different understanding. And so Lombard was kind of instrumental because he wrote like kind of the big theological textbook that was used everywhere. And so Aquinas came on the scene in the 13th century. He had to go through Lombard sentences, wrote a commentary on Lombard sentences, um, dissertation, was teaching through Lombard sentences. And then he himself wrote um, what's called Summa Theologiae, which is the sum of theology that's translated from Latin. And so that one's also a big work and it has, I believe, four different parts to it. Um, but he's also like, you can kind of consider him like in a, in a certain way, a cage stage Calvinist. He had, he had a certain understanding of salvation that was much closer to predestination than people give him credit for, even though he had a very high appreciation for kind of this growing Catholic doctrine of the church and tradition. Um, but he also had an understanding of this unified covenants, even though he wouldn't say that specifically between the old new testaments. Um, and so a lot of contemporary or I guess reformation contemporary theologians would interact a lot with Aquinas. So John Calvin and his institutes interacts a ton with Aquinas Luther interacts a lot with Aquinas because he was in the same order or um, Aquinas is in the Jesuit order and uh, Luther was in the Augustinian order. Um, and so there's, there's, there's this like general flavor of covenantalism. Cause that was, that was considered, how do we see these two testaments working together? And that was a lot of what they saw. They didn't see a distinction really between um, the old Testament church, new Testament church in general, they saw much more continuity between them than discontinuity. So that was, that's kind of those two guys and their contribution in a very snapshot way. Mm. So in a, in a positive way, the reformers looked at Thomas Aquinas. Oh versus, yeah. 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 They would. Yeah. Calvin would quotes um, Calvin quotes Lombard Calvin quotes Aquinas, both approvingly and disapprovingly. Um, but more approvingly than I think people give them credit for. So there's there's a lot of thought in the medieval church that that makes it through to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Something in the chapter too that like the very first sentence uh, kind of surprised me too, and uh, he goes on to explain why. But he says in the very first sentence of his chapter, Dr. Kelly he says the Middle Ages saw the longest period of theological development of any time frame within the Western Christian tradition. Yeah. I was like, huh. Yeah. Like you said, like you wouldn't think that the medieval, the, the middle ages was really a time of growth on anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he goes through it a little bit and that <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with um, theological heresies or the growth of 
um, Muslim religion from like the 8th century up until Averill, not up until, but like kind of through Averill in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it was like in reaction to a lot of bad stuff that the medieval theologians um, came up with these distinctions and really like really, really, really hammered on the doctrine of God. So if you, if you and he, I think Dr. Kelly goes through this, there's like different times in church history that certain doctrines have been really kind of nailed down. And during the medieval church, one of the doctrines that was really nailed down was the doctrine of God. Um, so they had, yeah. I think they had really strong. So kind of early church, generally speaking, doctrine of Christ and Trinity were kind of the two big topics. Um, and then medieval church, you got a lot of doctrine of God development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that on page 315, page 314 and page 315, kind of what you're talking about. First, with um, on the middle of page 314, you hear about uh, medievals relied most almost universally on Aristotle for logic and dialectic, uh, which had been long worked into Christian teaching with uh, Platonic tinge. With the spread of influence of such thinkers as Alvaros, like you were talking about, who was a Muslim, followed in the naturalistic line of the original Aristotle renewed theories of eternal creation, the morality of the soul, the one universal intellect for people began to affect the Christian intellectual elite. And so to say the least, this growing movement constituted in a serious intellectual problem for Orthodox Christian theology. So, yeah, that was just wrapping up on what you're saying about uh, various. Um, yeah, so that. it's like, yeah, like you're saying, so it's we always kind of have to understand the context a lot of a lot of these times. We can't just look at these times and kind of separate them from the context mm-hmm. and say, like, well, why didn't they talk about covenants? Why didn't they specifically say the word covenant? And a lot of it has to do with what's the context, the time, the, like the heresies that are around, the other yeah. religious groups that are, in the, that are in the area that they're responding to. That's, that's really big in this time period. Yeah, yeah. And what, going back to what you're saying, how uh, the Aristotelian thought was really prevalent. Um, I, actually, Aquinas responded to what I was reading before on page at the bottom of page 314 by appropriating significant elements of the Aristotelian thought distinctions between general and specific substance and accidents form and matter potentially and actually and um the account of human knowledge sense of perception and he fit those ideas into orthodox christian theology by while also rejecting carefully articulated reasons of Aristotle's secular assumptions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, and this has to do with, um, well, something we were talking about pre-recording is there was, <clears throat> there's some understanding before this and it's, it's a little bit tied to Aristotle and um, some other thinkers of this day, but that God was codependence and was not free from, from creation. And so he was creating something that Aquinas is very well known for is his distinction between the creator and the cre- creation. Mm. Uh, and so generally speaking, I think we think, I think we think we get that from the reformers when they get it from um, Aquinas really very specifically is where that doctrine, wow. that understanding comes from, um, which is, that's where kind of the nominalist position, the voluntarist position, a lot of these wrestle with how does God relate to the world? Um, voluntarist is, 
God can make any decision. He's a free. And it's, it sounds it sounds better than you think it is, or it sounds better than it actually is. Um, where God is voluntary, is not restricted by anything. So effectively, like as Reformed Christians, we say God's not restricted, but He is perfectly Himself in whatever He does, and so. Mm-hmm quote unquote he has restrictions like he can't lie that's technically a restriction on god even though like it sounds weird to say that stuff but god's god god is who he is whenever he acts he's never not himself versus a lot of these other positions will say in a sense he reacts to creation or he's not defined by anything else and he can just do whatever he wants and so a kindness comes in and says no 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 that's not what scripture says Scripture says God is distinct and he acts upon creation. Yeah, I mean, God wouldn't be God if he started lying and and doing anything less than being perfectly who he is. And actually, to what you're saying exactly, on page it starts on page 322 under the the title, The Medieval Doctrine of God. uh, We start talking about the Dr. Kelly in this chapter starts talking about in Exodus 313 when god uh answers moses when he's moses asking who do i say that you are Mm -hmm. um and he says i am who i am and then so dr kelly starts expanding on that throughout the rest of the most of this chapter actually to the end of the chapter about the deep doctrine of god being in essence of who he just is he just is who he is there's no there's no nothing before God. He is the pure essence that made everything else. So mm-hmm. it, it goes back to the creator creation distinction as yeah. well. Yeah. And uh, I, maybe a lot of you guys listen to this right now. I was like, well, duh, that's what God says in Exodus. So he is who he is and he doesn't change where mm-hmm. that was very distinctive in this time where there was some, like I was, there's, there was some other understandings of who God is where he's not bound by anything. He's part of creation very literally, even though he created creation, he's part of it himself. Whereas reformed Christians like, no, he's not part of creation. He is outside of creation. Yet he still interacts with creation through his son, Jesus. It it feels like in this chapter during this time in, in medieval Europe, that there's a hunger for a need of being, reminded and known uh know who god is and and it's interesting that we go back to obviously the 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 important thing to know in this chapter is um that the old testament and the new testament are uh connected yeah right yeah um but even going back and we're not talking deeply into the gospels and stuff, which are still just as good, but this chapter is going in like explaining the, the, the essence of who God is. Like we're having to remind the people I am who I am. Like, so I think people in the medieval time are like, they, they kind of want to relearn the Bible maybe and the covenants. Yeah. And that, and that, that, that has to do with a lot of the theological flavor environment of the day where, the doctrine of God wasn't lost. It was just blurred. And then mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's the same thing where um, we have Arius in the, the fourth century who's talking about there was a time when the son was not. So he's talking about that the son, Jesus Christ, was not eternally generated. 
um, from eternity past that he has no creation date and no end. And Arius in the fourth century denied that the sun was eternally generated, that he was a created being. And so you see a lot of theological talk in the fourth century about Christ's dual nature, his fully man and fully God. And so you're like, when you read these times, you're like, why didn't they talk about other doctrines? It's because they're very, they're responding to very specific heresies at that time that they need to make sure are codified for the church from there on out. Um, Same thing as the medieval church, where one of the things that's kind of lost is a biblical doctrine of God. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, it's probably confused everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have each other. Um, But that's that's what the medieval church, I I think in a very real sense, recovers nearly fully and then kind of hands off the Reformation says, here you go. I like that. Yeah, we go, we get back to explaining the doctrine of God. And um, yeah, I mean, I, that's just, I think that that's what really pointed out to me because we start going into the very beginning of the Bible, um, of close to the beginning of the Bible, going through Exodus, just explaining I am who I am and the deep doctrine of who God is. And, and yeah. so, and I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are like, why aren't they talking about covenant, covenant more often? And it's, and we kind of signaled this at the very beginning. And it's because just the word covenant isn't used all that often in this time period. And it's not really developed all that much. But what Dr. Kelly talks about at various points, and at the very end on page 326 or 325, he says it directly. Um, it's because it gives it structure. And so a lot of a lot of what the theologians are talking about from the old and test old testament, new testament assumes that the Old Testament and New Testament are cohesive in some certain sense, that there's continuity between the Old and New Testament. So the Mm. very last paragraph, the first and last sentences, Dr. Kelly says, to have relied so directly on Moses demonstrates that Okinus knew well of the lasting covenant established by God, which undergirded both Old and New Testaments. And in the very end, he says, but it was nonetheless powerful for all that, giving solid substance to what we now call medieval theologists there, there had to be an underlying assumption that what the old testament says is not different than what the new testament says and it provides the same doctrine of god we get from old to new testament so there's there's some structural stuff they see of the bible and the continuity that allows a lot of the medieval theologians to say what they say mm-hmm. yeah they're 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 bridging the gap to, I mean, we say that in our show, but <laughs> yeah. that's kind of what they're doing. I mean, they're, yeah. they're finding context and thought of the day and the major players um, of that people look to for understanding and they, and they, and they introduce uh, doctrine um, to the time of the day um, yeah. to what they're looking for, what they're, what questions they're asking. Exactly. Yeah. What yeah. questions are so there's certain questions that are asked in the early church. There's certain questions that are asked in the medieval church. And there's certain questions that are asked in the Reformation church. Doesn't mean mm. that we have different doctrinal understandings. It means we're responding to different questions. But then in order for us to respond to those questions, the undergirding structure of covenant still has to be there for us to ask or answer those questions as we would in the early church, as we would in the medieval church and as we would in the, in the reformation church too. Mm-hmm. And speaking of this medieval time, 
um, something that's good that Dr. Kelly mentions um, at the middle of uh, page 325 he says, and this kind of wraps up to what we've been talking about so far. He says, there is but one God yeah. and there, and this God is being is going back to the I am statement. And this is the cornerstone of all Christian philosophy. So we're going to Christ, we're kind of talking about Christ there. And it was not, not Plato. This was definitely pre Plato's definitely pre uh, medieval. It mm-hmm. was not Aristotle. Again, that was a pre medieval person that a lot of people in medieval times were looking towards for understanding. It was Moses put in that position. Yeah. Put in position. So they're going back to like, let me remind you of those Plato and Aristotle guys. Those are great, you know, human thinkers, but let me show you a really good guy in human history who understood and talked about God. It was Moses. And let's go to scripture and explain what God said to Moses when he asked the big question to God, who do I say that you are? And that answers the time of the day in medieval time, the doctrine of God. I am. Yeah, that's, and I think that's something so crucial to get about the medieval church is it's not that the medieval church, like we said at the beginning of this episode, lost the Bible and the Reformation church refound the Bible. It's Reformation took the thought from the early church and the medieval church took what they got, basically were handed the baton and says, okay, now your turn to develop more of these doctrines, develop more of a covenantal understanding. Um, the Reformation, as you guys will hear next week with Dr. Clark, um, that's a little plug for who's coming on next week for you guys. Mm-hmm. But they took this baton and they started developing a liturgy, a worship stuff that was in distinction from the Catholic understanding of how these elements worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's to say all of this that the medieval church didn't lose the Bible. They weren't like wandering around for 1100 years, not sure what to do with themselves. Mm-hmm. It's they still had theological emphases. They still had great theologians that we are still learning from today. And they had an understanding. So the very fact that Aquinas goes back to Moses, builds his doctrine of God from Moses, assumes that Aquinas saw a structure in the Bible that allowed him to take a doctrinal understanding of God in the Old Testament and pull that through to the New Testament and say it's the same exact God doing the same exact things, which mm. for us is covenantal. There we go. Thank goodness for Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, uh, he's the main guy of this chapter, hugely significant during this period of human history. Um, so I feel like with AD 2021, um, the world probably looks and seems way different than medieval times, but I feel like there's some similarities. We, a lot of culture needs to be reminded the doctrine of God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, R.C. Sproul built his ministry off the holiness of God. And so mm-hmm. he talks about a, an understanding of we need to build back a doctrine of God, which I mean, I wouldn't disagree with at all. And I, I mean, I think some of the current kind of heresies or misunderstandings generally now around the Trinity, which involves the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always have to go back to what Aquinas did. And I think a lot of Christians have a bad taste in their mouth that they either come from the Catholic context or know about the Catholic context because Aquinas is so tied to the Catholic context. They're like, well, we can't read him as a Catholic. But he's got so much good stuff. I mean, I probably read 75% of his stuff during school. 
um, going through Sumo Theologiae, there's so much good stuff in what he says. And so you can't throw away everything. You can't throw the baby with the bathwater when there's so yeah. much good stuff. And you realize, like, when you read Aquinas, it's a little bit like reading Calvin. He's, mm. He has that much breadth of his, in his understanding of scripture. And you start, if you read Calvin, you realize how much he relies on a lot of these medieval and early church theologians. Because guess who the Reformation read? They read medieval theologians. That's just what they did. They read medieval theologians. They read early church theologians. And so in order for us to have an understanding of medieval church, we should look at the reformers and say, how did you guys read it? How did you guys understand it? And they saw a lot of the same thought that they themselves published. Wow. I imagine this is going to be a lot of new historical information people haven't really been exposed to. Probably not. Um, no. Well, they're probably like, I mean, just like I was, you're probably yeah. a little bit like timid going to the medieval times. You're like, oh, this is the dark times. This is when nothing good happened. 1100 years of a vacuum. The Roman Empire fell. Like what? Nothing basically happened for 1100 years. And so like, you're like, what's there to learn from the medieval times when there's a lot to learn? There's some great doctrines that, that were developed and handed off to the Reformation Church that we still benefit from today. So it's done more than inspire some fantastic movies and, and uh, scenes <laughs> yeah. for yeah. entertainment. Monty Python, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's rich with history. Yeah. And there was, like, surprisingly a big growth in, um, in, in theology during that time. I mean, it was a gigantic period of time. It went, again, from the 6th century to almost the 15th century. That's a long period of time. Yeah, and, I mean, maybe to re-emphasize it for people who were you know checked out because i check out during podcasts too um, <laughs> you checked out while i was rambling yeah, for I, a was, while. <laughs> I was checking out while nick was talking yep, yep um but it's i think so often we think when again we're talking about the reformers a lot but it's because reformers i mean when they first started the reformation they weren't reading reformers it wasn't like john calvin's institutes weren't available to martin luther in 1519 when he or 1517 when he posted the 75 or 95 theses or in 1519, when he was lecturing through Galatians or Psalms, he wasn't reading reformers back then. He was mm. still reading medieval theologians. He was still reading Aquinas. He was still reading Dunscotus, all these, all these guys who were part of this church. And a lot of his theology came from these guys. And so we can read a lot of these guys. And while they may not explicitly state it, they're still going to assume a lot of the same structure of the Bible that we assume. So for you to get your doctrine of God from the Old Testament, there has to be an assumption that the God of the Old Testament works the same way as the God of the New Testament. And for you to have that understanding, you, you have to have some covenantal context to see God working the same way in both Testaments, because that's what we say as covenantal theologians. God worked the same way in the Old Testament as he does in the New. Although he expands the Old Testament to the New, it's still the same substance as the old and that's mm. the medieval theologians saw a lot of the same stuff so the medieval theologians were in a time and place obviously uh, post-resurrection of christ yep. so they knew the name of the savior jesus christ yep. just like we do yeah but it's yeah. interesting just like we do they need to be reminded about the doctrine of the of god yeah and that's that's something i think they developed better than the early church and they gave 
a pretty robust doctrine of God to the Reformation that the Reformation, I mean, really, again, if you read Calvin, you read Luther, you read Bollinger, you read all these reformers, they get their doctrine of God from the medieval church. Mm. So with the medieval theologians learning, being reminded in, in about the doctrine of God through mainly Thomas Aquinas, how did that help their justification and edification and sanctification towards who Christ is and what his finished work already did? I'm going to leave a little cliffhanger on that one and say, Dr. Clark will answer for that, uh, that for us next yeah. week. That's exactly why I asked the question. I just, <laughs> we're going the same wavelength. Yeah. Dr. Yep. Clark will pretty much start with that. And he's going to, he's going to lead you guys into a tour de force of the reformation. Oh yeah. You're going to like in your head, you can see to be continued dot, dot, dot. So that's where we're <laughs> exactly. going to bridge from here. Cliffhanger. So to get, to give you some taste of what's coming for the next episode, how many years are we going to jump from where this chapter ends? I would say this chapter ends close to the end of the 15th century. The yeah, next I mean, chapter is Covenant and Reformation Theology. Which starts with Luther, which is yep. Luther's kind of a transitionary figure from a medieval theologian to a, a Reformation theologian. So, like, I mean, you get something from like 1480 to 1520 there's a transition period where there's some inklings of the reformation before then but it, it hits hard about 1520 yep and so there's going to be a lot of stuff between this chapter and the next that the roman catholic church does that kicks off uh, a very angry uh martin luther yep yeah very angry martin luther and uh, I mean, what what you can you can say you can say a whole lot, but um, maybe maybe I'll leave with this because it's a misunderstanding, and I've already kind of alluded to it. But the Roman Catholic Church didn't start in the medieval times. Nope, they started after the Reformation. They were a response to the Reformation. Isn't that interesting? You know, I what. I was part of the Roman Catholic church. Like any Roman Catholic, we were like, Oh, we're the original Christians. That's yeah. the first Christian church. And that's historically just not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's not accurate. Also it's, it's yeah. Uh, Roman church was not the Roman church or Catholic inklings throughout. But I mean, you, if you asked Luther or Calvin, they would have effectively said we're Catholic theologians, but Catholic in the universal reform sense, not in the, but yeah, we'll, we'll get into this stuff with, uh, with Dr. Clark, but I mean, hopefully you guys saw that covenant theology, while it may not have been named and wasn't as developed in the medieval church was assumed in a lot of things that they, that they understood within um, theological topics of the day. So ho hopefully you guys saw that, even though it's a hard time to, to go through because there's not much explicit mention. It's just, it's that structure that theology is built upon. Mm -hmm. They're building blocks and structures. They're architectonic structures yep. of beams and pillars for the Bible. That's what Michael Horton says. Yep. And for next episode, we're not going to have too hard of a time 
holding Dr. Clark back talking about the response <laughs> to the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, this is what a, he does. He's a raging bull, and all we're going to do is just kind of open up the door and just let him rip. I, I'm going to uh, crack a beer and probably put my 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 Zoom meeting on mute and just let him go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys learned uh, a little bit about some theologians and uh, learned some stuff about medieval theology and Maybe you'll pick up some of these guys and it, let let Douglas Kelly, let Dr. Kelly kind of hold your hand throughout this time. And if you guys pick up some of these works, I would, I would, uh, I would suggest it. But um, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode and look forward to next week with Dr. Clark on Reformation history. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes if you're on this podcast this specific episode scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating so we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap pay for shipping get nicer stuff all for the focus of spreading the gospel further yep all for the kingdom of god thanks so much guys we'll see you guys next time <laughs>